Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk also as ye have us for an example. These are the first words of the epistle reading today from St. Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi. He encourages them to follow him, be a follower together with me. When Jesus called most of his disciples, what he said to them was, follow me. The idea of following, being a follower, is central to the Christian faith. We often call it the walk with God. Before Christianity was called Christianity, which took a couple centuries to have that word sort of coined, Christians, that word was coined earlier, but they were described as being followers of the way. Christianity was first called the way. The didache, that first great example that we have of uh, Christian discipleship, written down. It's, aside from the letters of St. Paul, the first real description of how a Christian is supposed to live. Uh, it was lost for centuries, and it was only recovered um, through some archaeology, um, I think less than 100 or 200 years ago. But quotations from that have proved just how uh, robust and strong the tradition of the church is, because without this document that was lost for centuries, once it was uncovered and scholars started reading through it, it was remarkable how much early tradition of the church has been preserved. Um, the proof being in this old document that probably was written at the end of the first century. And it begins like this. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. So from the start, Christianity has always been walking in the way, following after Christ and his apostles. We don't perceive this as super strange. We often think of our lives as kind of a, a linear progression, right, with a beginning and an end, and even the, the world itself we think of uh, being linear in this way. But this was not at all obvious to a lot of people in a lot of the world through a lot of time. In the the great Eastern religions, there's more of an idea that the world is almost cyclical, that it repeats in great timescales over and over and over. Even the, the animating force of any creature might repeat in a different form over and over and over again. In fact, uh, the metaphysics of uh, early Buddhism was really just to try to learn how to escape this repetition, to, to be so at peace and... Uh, removed from this cycle that you finally get to escape it, nirvana. The early Greek philosophers thought of the world not necessarily as cyclical, but really kind of as just static. It's like, yes, it had a creator, but they didn't really think of a creator creating the world in time so that it has a beginning and then it, it moves on. They thought of the world as needing sort of a, a, a source for its existence, but that source, as far as they were concerned, was static. It had always been. The universe just always was, and it depended on the great 
uh, unmoved mover uh, to keep it in motion and, and to keep it in existence. But it had always been that way, as far as they could tell, Plato and Aristotle. And that was actually the thinking of a lot of physicists for a long time, when after centuries of Christendom sort of dominating the thought patterns of, of people in Europe, the Enlightenment comes and now you have all these thinkers starting to break out of the bonds of Christianity and start to wonder, I wonder if the universe isn't really static like Aristotle told us. And that was actually the predominating theory of a lot of physicists all the way up until the 20th century, when it took, uh, strangely enough, a Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre, who was a physicist, uh, to work out the theory of what was uh, termed in a derogatory way, the Big Bang at first. But it turns out he was just following the evidence, the evidence that the universe was expanding and uh, running things back he did the calculations and worked out that, yeah, actually the universe needed um, a beginning. And so now all of a sudden we have physics, uh, our observations of the physical universe confirming at least, uh, you know, what Christianity had always held by faith, that this world had a beginning. So I say all that just to say we might be used to thinking of the world as moving from a beginning and toward an end, but a lot of people haven't. So we do now have confirmation. It's right that we think in these terms. And in fact, the scriptures describe things happening in a linear fashion from the very beginning. In that we read at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. It's right there. But after this pattern of uh, the first day of the week through the seventh day of the week is established, we see this this linear or this uh, cyclical pattern established, but we might think that that's how God intended it to be, cyclical, static. But no, even from the start, God tells the humans after he creates them, what? Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. They have a forward progressive motion that they're assigned. They're supposed to multiply and then uh, once they learn how to, you know, garden and tend the garden pretty well, they're supposed to actually leave Eden and go and subdue the earth. Why? Because it's got, you know, elements of chaos still that God needs to um, have the humans help him to subdue and to bring everything into a, a fullness. Um, and so from the beginning, things are moving forward. It's like the creation is almost a project, Right. But, of course, the project goes off course. Human beings uh, don't do what they're supposed to do. They fall away from the grace and the purpose that they were intended to have. And after their initial rebellion, we see events continue to unfold in the scriptures in narrative form. It's like a story is being told now. We see this pattern of people uh, doing something wrong and then doing something right. Cain is doing something wrong while Abel is doing something right. And their actions have consequences, and then that drives the narrative along. And we see that continue on. We go through the flood. We have, uh, after the flood, the, the peoples are trying, they're, they're in motion, but they try to stop their motion, almost like the, the Buddhist uh, desire to escape the constant forward motion. And they plant themselves in a place, and they build a giant tower, and they're going to call God down to them because now they have the power, the technology, 
of baking bricks and and now they're going to use their power to call God to them so that they can control their circumstances and not be scattered. They're worried about that. We're going to be scattered in the world. And so what happens in their pride? God comes and scatters them (laughs) because they didn't do what they were supposed to be doing. And so we see this problem of people not knowing how, to, how best to operate in the world. Cain makes the wrong choice. Abel makes the right. And this pattern repeats over and over again. And so finally, God calls one man to do the right thing, to follow him. It turns out the way that this man is supposed to break out from all the wrongdoing is by following God. The path of his spiritual progress toward being uh, at home with God, to being at rest with God, is actually a sojourn. It starts with forward motion. And we see now, for the first time in Scripture, really, the idea that in order to be at rest with God, there's a journey. There's a forward motion. There's a way to be followed. This continues. After Abram, you have the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, wandering in the desert. They're being called to follow God, but they don't attain their rest, as we heard at the end of Psalm 95 this morning when we sang, uh, God in his wrath swore that they would not enter into his rest. They followed not according to God's plan, and so they didn't attain his rest. So when the next generation finally does come into the land where they're supposed to be able to rest, they still have a task, and that's to drive out all those who are not following God, but they don't do it. And so they never attain the rest, even in the promised land. They're constantly dealing, uh, following after false gods. And then what happens? There come, uh, nations come in and drive them out. And so now they're scattered again. They're wandering. They're not at rest. So what happens finally is, again, one man in all of the world enters into the scene, comes into the narrative, and shows us how to successfully sojourn and follow after the plan that God has, and finally come to rest. He is now resting on his throne in his established kingdom. The pattern has been completed. On, on, at the crucifixion, what does Pilate unwittingly say to everyone looking on? Behold the man, Eche homo. Here is the human being finally following after God and entering into his rest. That's why all the people who came after uh, the apostles, learning from what the, the stories the apostles told them about Jesus, about the power of God operating through the man Jesus who overcame death by entering into it and then raising human nature up to the throne of God, is it any wonder that that life would be called the way? The way of following Jesus is always going to be a sojourn. Now, it feels like no matter what we do in life, following Jesus or not, we can't stop moving. The world is always moving around us. There's always chaos. There are always people trying to build little kingdoms, new little towers, all this activity, buzzing, things happening. You can't escape it. Some people try. They go off into the woods or they move to a different country or whatever. It doesn't matter. Motion will follow you. The sun will rise and set, and you will get a day older. You can't stop it. There's no way to rest in this life. There's no way to stop the motion, to not be a sojourner. So the choice we have to make is which way 
will we follow? Will we follow the way of death or will we follow the way of life? There are two ways and they're very different. One points in one direction, the other points in the other. In fact, we could say that God, there's only one way to God and that's to follow God. But every other way that there is leads away from God. So there are a bazillion ways away from God, but only one way to God, and that's to orient yourself toward him and to follow him. The way is narrow, right? Jesus told his disciples. The door, there's only one, and it's me. So how do we orient ourselves to God? How do we point ourselves toward the one door to stay on the narrow path? Well, we come to church. We learn through our actions here. You know, here in church, we actually ritualize the sojourn. The, the movements that we make in church literally start at that door. We come in, and this is, there's a linear path, right? We start there, and we look toward the ritual east, the direction of the sunrise, and we see the altar. We see uh, the crucifix. We see the one path to take. When we come in, we have these ritualized motions. Where else in all of life are our motions imbued with such meaning? You know, like we, we have handshakes. That's, that's a ritual motion. That has meaning in it. We'll, we'll meet somebody and we shake their hand. I'm at a loss to think of much else that we do in this world that has our actions, our motions, our bodily movements imbued with meaning and purpose like here. We genuflect. We put our knee on the ground here. That's a thing that we do with our bodies. And what does that mean? It means that we're submitting ourselves in reverence to the authority and power of God. We put water on us in the shape of a cross when we walk in the door. That water is holy and blessed. The shape of the cross means that the pattern of Christ's life is now put on us. We, we come down and take our place in what's called the nave. Why is it called the nave? Well, because for a long time, it was you know, the shape actually uh, suggested this, but even if the shape of the building in this area doesn't suggest it, the purpose of this area still means that we are journeying because nave has a, uh, the same root as the word for naval and navy. Nave, nave in Latin is the word for ship. So it's like we're all in a ship, an ark, if you will. We're gathered out from the world and we're in an ark journeying toward our destination. And our destination is here, the boundary of earth and heaven, when through our ritual actions, through our words, through our singing, through our motions, through our prayer, the mystery, uh, the, the liturgy, the linear nature of the liturgy brings us through the chants, through the epistle, through the gospel, through the creed, and finally into the mystery where linear time is broken into, where we're no longer just journeying Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Linear time stops for a moment. We enter into time that breaks through from the rest of heaven. The established kingdom breaks into our journey, and we are strengthened. We take part in Christ's life, the one man who has sojourned successfully, and we partake of, we foretaste the wedding feast where we join with him eventually. Linearly, we're not there yet, but through a mystery, we are. Today, we participate. So 
through the actions of the liturgy, through our prayers, through the motions that we make, we are trained and reinforced in living according to the one way here so that we can live it better out there. That's why St. Paul calls those reading his letter to follow after his pattern. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And Christ calls us all to follow him in the one way. Let's work to do our best to let the Holy Spirit of God open our hearts to be able to faithfully, accurately follow the way that we are being called. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.